Welcome to the Mental Health Business Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margot Jaco. Are you a clinician looking to find the balance between providing compassionate client care and business agility? This show will help with things you need to know to start or grow your practice and better serve your clients. I hope you enjoy the show. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us again today. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, always, always a pleasure. So, Jonathan, you, you gave us a lot of great information on the last episode that I, I just wanted to make sure that we could continue to give people some of these good tidbits because I think they're super important. So, this week, I thought what we could talk about is if someone is hiring on staff, a big question that comes up is this issue of 1099 versus W-2. That is a biggie. So 1099, folks, is when you have an independent contractor, you have to be very mindful, very careful of how you treat that person. They are not your employee. So Jonathan, can you speak to us a little bit about 1099 versus W-2? Absolutely. Happy to. Uh, uh, A 1099 independent contractor. A 1099 is the form that one would generally send out at the end of the year to evidence how much money they paid an independent contractor. It's kind of like a W-2 that someone receives from the employment wages that they receive. Um, If you're an employer, a corporation, or an LLC, and you have uh, you contract with a a a company, either a corporation or an LLC, for the work of an individual who is working as an independent contractor, you may not need to issue a 1099. Again, I am not a tax attorney, so these are the things you need to speak to your accountant about. However, what we call a 1099 or an independent contractor is a person who is practicing independently. They must have a clinical license. They cannot be an LPC or an LSW or a psychologist without a clinical designation. They cannot work independently doing clinical work. Right. So folks, just so you know, sorry to interrupt you, Jonathan, just so you know, if you are hiring someone who is unlicensed like a postdoc, or has a terminal license, a provisional license, meaning an LSW, an, uh, an LPC in our state in Illinois, meaning they don't have all their C's yet, you need to make sure that those people are employees. They can never be an independent contractor. And the reason for that is that those people have to work under your direct supervision and control. And if someone is an independent contractor, they are independent in their professional work. And that's important to understand. Now, the problem with that, I mean, you can designate as a practice owner, for example, uh, a minimum level of uh, policy clinical obligations. If you're uh, a, a religious-based provider, that, that the, the work be done consistent with that is, for an, is an example. But the agency cannot direct the day-to-day work of the the independent contractor clinician uh, in how they are providing services. So uh, that can be a big problem. The, the, an, an employee is under the, the direction of the employer and is obligated to do what the employer tells them to do with regard to their clinical work. Now, where you're going to end up with a, a real problem with this is that if you've got an independent contractor 
you are not withholding any taxes. You tend not to have to pay unemployment insurance. That's the money you pay to the state. Each state has their own set of rules. But the money that you pay to the state to pay for unemployment benefits if someone gets fired. And incidentally, if you are paying uh, unemployment insurance and you have claims on your unemployment insurance, your percentages go up based upon the amount of claims you have over the prior, I think it's three-year period. So it can become very expensive. Uh, I think you start off at 0.04% and it can go up to actual percentages depending on how many people are making claims for unemployment. Uh, bottom line, uh, hire slow, fire fast. <laughs> so in Illinois, if you've got someone in your office for 30 days as an employee, you're obligated and, and they and, and you fire them, they're generally entitled to unemployment insurance. If someone quits, they are generally not entitled to unemployment insurance. Well, that's a whole other one of our, our discussions. Mm -hmm. So an independent contractor is a person who is independent. And now, I always advise people, go Google independent contractor or, and 1099 yep. and 20questions. And then put in period GOV so that you get the government websites. Be, be warned and careful about um, Googling this and getting either a law firm or a uh, an accountant telling you their take on independent contractors versus employees. I think you're better off looking at the government websites. I think it will be more helpful to you and it's more you can rely on it and you can look at that analysis that they have in 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 the government websites in determining whether someone is an independent contractor or an employee. Now the problem is if you've identified them as an independent contractor you don't have to as I said you don't have to withhold uh, tax taxes. You don't have to provide certain types of of benefits like unemployment insurance. As I said workers compensation would probably be applicable whether they're employees or independent contractors, but you're going to have to talk to your your workers' compensation uh, insurance people with regard to that. And it's very important for you to be aware that if either the IRS or the Department of Labor determines that your designation as an independent contractor is wrong, that you're designated as an independent contractor, but they are really employees by the way you are managing them, by the, the systems you have in place, by the computers and hardware and things that you're letting them use, and they determine that that's the case, then you may be obligated for wage issues under the Department of Labor, and you may be obligated, let's say one of your independent contractors has not paid their taxes. And... Uh, which happens a lot. People, you know, when they cross their fingers and hope they don't get caught right. and they haven't paid their taxes and the IRS comes in and looks at the relationship and says, this really isn't an independent contractor relationship. It's an employment relationship. And you as the employer should have been withholding these taxes and paying them to the government on a monthly or a semi-monthly basis. And under those circumstances, you as the employer are now responsible to pay that. So it's very, it can create a lot of liability and a lot of problems and the government does not mess around. I'll let you know, 
this as as draconian and scary as the IRS is, the Illinois State Department of Revenue, as I understand it, is even scarier. Don't don't mess with the Illinois Department of Revenue. Yeah, if you live in another state, you might be glad. But uh, there's lots of good things about being in Illinois, but this this might be a trickier one. Yeah. They they may be worse. And also, Illinois is running at a huge deficit, mm-hmm. and the only way they're collecting money is through taxes. So, mm-hmm. in one way or another, so that's that's important to be aware of. Uh, that having been said, and as an employee, you have a lot more control over what people are doing. Uh, Margot, as you said, if you've got a, a non clinical licensee or you've got a postdoc person, they've finished their their schooling, they're in the process of collecting their information, sitting for their, uh, their uh, I think you use the word terminal exam. Those people can be hired. They can bill based upon whatever provisions of whatever insurance companies you have. So each insurance company is going to have their own set of rules. And that's, as I said, another uh, of these uh Yep. these discussions that we may have in the future. Yep. But uh, while they are non-clinical licensees, they have to be employees. Also, if you look at the hours necessary to achieve a license, they have to have 2,000 or 3,000 hours, depending. And it, those hours have to be under the direct supervision and control of an employer. And if they are not under the direct supervision and control when the employer is there to fill out the forms for the amount of hours that the uh, the provisional licensee has um, has had so that they meet the criteria for sitting for their clinical exams, if they weren't under the direct supervision and control, and you cannot be under the direct supervision and control if you're an independent contractor, then you would be lying on the form to the people who give you a license. Never a good idea. <laughs> never a good idea. So I have never seen anybody get in trouble for that. Okay. But it's not that, a good, it's just not a good idea. That's yeah. just my experience. I'm sure there are other people out there who have. Well, let's hope that that that's not anyone who's listening to our podcast. So folks, so you really need to make sure and, and please do hop on. There are some really good articles. Maybe, Chris, we could put one in our show notes for today. But again, that's only for informational purposes. I'm not guaranteeing any of the information that's on there, but the IRS does have this information so that you can get that distinction, 1099 or W-2, and just be sure that you are following what they recommend and look at your state as well. So, Jonathan, there's a lot that goes into a contract or an employment agreement And so I would just recommend rather than us digging into that, because I don't think anybody ought to be doing their own contracts, quite frankly, contact a good attorney, make sure that you you know contact Jonathan, contact a good attorney, make sure that you get a good contract that you can give to folks. But here's an issue that comes up, this issue of non-compete clauses. And we have hired several people over the course of COVID and many over the years and some have had these 10-year, 10-mile non-compete clauses, and they've been told, oh, that's not really enforceable. And then other folks have said, well, I've been told it's enforceable if I've signed it. So what would you recommend that people consider? Because, you know, as they're putting their contracts together, what are what is this thing about a non-compete clause and how should that look in a contract? 
first of all, it's very important that the lawyer you go to to draft your independent independent contractor agreement or employment agreement for a mental health services provider understands mental health services because they may be a brilliant business lawyer and write contracts every day uh, for multi-million dollar deals, but they have no insight into the needs of the mental health services providers or the case law with regard to it. So that's most important. Mm -hmm. Non-compete agreements, to the extent that they are reasonable as to geographic location, the distance, for example, and duration, how long they will be enforced can be enforceable. One thing that is generally not enforceable is the idea that a agency owns the patients. They don't own the patients. That's right. To be honest with you, uh, I have never seen an agency who told a leaving therapist that they can take their patients with them. I've never found that that was harmful to them except in one situation. And it's going to explain why uh, it's important to have a, a capable lawyer draft your documents. I had a, a wonderful clinician who worked in the South suburbs who I really appreciated. And this clinician had four people working for him. He was a mental health provider. He had four people working for him. He worked in one of these long buildings with these very, very, very long hallways. It's like being in a hotel room in Vegas. It can take you 20 minutes to get to the elevator. And you walk down this blank hallway, no doors on either side, and you look to your left, and this is a door, and it was a, a, a glass door in gold writing that had the name of his agency and then his name and then the four professionals who worked with him. And this LCSW and this LCSW and this LCSW and this LCSW, and there was no other doors forever on either side of the hallway. It was like he was in the middle of an abyss there. And he left on Friday, having four people working for him and him. He was the last one to leave, always the first one there in the morning, always the last one to leave. And he comes back to work in the, early in the morning on Monday morning, and there is a new door placed directly across the hall from his door. Look at uh, his door. Shit. Turn around 180 degrees, there's a new door. He looks at his door, and the four clinicians that were below his name on that door have been scratched off. And he turns around and the four clinicians who were there are now in the door directly across the hall. In other words, patient, when you get to my old office, turn turn around, go right instead of left, and you'll go into my new office. And he called me, he says, what do I do? And I looked at his document and he said uh, he had written it himself. He's not a dumb guy. He was a very smart guy. He actually did kind of a nice job putting it together, but it was not substantive enough to be enforceable in my observation and could have tried. And I said, I think we can try. I think we can at least hold things up enough to work something out. Maybe they have to move some distance away from you, or they'd have to shut down that office and find another office somewhere else. Or, But I mean, because this is really egregious right across the hall from you. And he says, okay, then we need to do it. And I said, I'm going to need a fifteen dollars or $20,000 retainer because that's at least how much it was going to cost. And he decided not to not to go forward on that. It's a sad thought. So think about it. If you own an agency and four of your five therapists leave, 85% of your income immediately leaves and you have rent to pay. 
So uh, if you're a clinician having a, a, a decent, well-thought-out, appropriate employment agreement or independent contractor agreement is important. The concept of non-compete agreements, if it renders you in a position where you are unable to do your profession in Illinois, it will generally not be enforceable. I litigated one of these on behalf of, of a therapist against an agency not too long ago. And uh, I felt that on public policy issues alone, I had a, a 100% winner. And I had a judge who, who, in no uncertain terms, told me he was the smartest person I'd ever met. And he's the judge, so I had to believe him. That's right. Uh, tell me, he asked me, he says, Mr. Nye, did this clinician come to you before he signed this contract? I said, no, judge, he didn't. He says, if he had come to you with this contract, would you have advised him to sign it as it's written? I said, no, judge, I probably wouldn't. Judge says, well, why should I let him out of a bad deal? <laughs> so this is, is, is informative that it is a really smart idea to get a lawyer who understands mental health law to work with you. Now, when I draft employment contracts and independent contract agreements for practitioners, uh, people like the Juniper Center, I include in my contracts things like a correspondence that will be used when and if that therapist leaves the practice. So they agree at the time they start working together what document they're going to use to communicate to the patients. Yep. How that's going to work eliminates the problems because you've already agreed how you're going to deal with it. I also have in my agreements uh, uh, defining the services that they are providing, independent contractors or employees. They don't get paid by the hour. They get paid by what we call a clinical hour, which is defined as more than the 50 minutes, 40 minutes, 60 minutes. It's defined as the service time required to provide the services and any additional time is necessary to adequately document the case, chart the information, complete your progress progress notes, complete the billing required information if there are any audits or any denials of coverage that the clinician has an obligation to uh, additionally work with the agency to either amend the the charting, the, the patient record, so that if it is not sufficient, it becomes sufficient to be paid and that they don't get paid unless and until they have completed all these things and potentially not until they uh, the agency receives reimbursement. And, and that's not taking advantage of anybody. That's just saying that your job is to do everything from the, the minute the patient walks into the room until everything that needs to be done in order for the agency to get paid, they don't get paid until they've done that. Exactly. That's That's such good advice. So Jonathan, I have worked with some folks who have come to me for consultation who have downloaded a template and oh. they just sort of filled it. And I said, no, 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 for the love of Pete, don't do that to yourself. Get a good attorney. And to your point, a good attorney who understands mental health. So folks, Jonathan can do this for you. He's done our contracts for us. I've been really happy with that. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Jonathan, he also has a consultation service that you can 
subscribe to for a year that you can find that information on his website. We'll give you that information in a moment, but please make sure you, you get yourself a good agreement because these things come to bite people in the end. So Jonathan, when I'm talking to somebody about a non-compete agreement, what I'm saying to them is, look, I don't want you to take our referral sources. I don't want you to take our, our uh, I don't want you to open up an office right near us. That's really the spirit of it. And we have it in writing and we have the distance, we have the duration. And that's really the point. And, and I did that in part um, because we did have somebody who ended up opening a practice in our building. And as you can imagine, folks, it's just a really bad plan. So get somebody good to, to construct this for you. So last question for today, Jonathan. So this is less about, you know, what are you doing when you're setting up a practice, but something to be considering because a lot of therapists right now are becoming telehealth providers, telehealth only providers. And guess what? There's a lot of legality that goes into where are you practicing? Where are you? Where are you licensed? Where is your client? So for people who are setting up a telehealth practice, who are engaging in telehealth now and who will be hiring telehealth practitioners, can you please explain a bit about where do they need to be? What do their licenses need to be? Absolutely. Happy to. Uh, if you're licensed in the state of Illinois, your patient must be located in the state of Illinois. Now, I'm not saying if you have a patient who goes to Las Vegas for the weekend and loses half of their money they have in their bank and they call you in crisis that you tell them, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I think under those circumstances, a patient who's in crisis, that person needs to get some help and that under those circumstances, you should provide that help. But you are not licensed to provide services when a patient is outside of Illinois. And if someone goes away for vacation, that's one thing. If someone goes away for three months or six months or is a snowbird and leaves Illinois to go down to Arizona for six months of the year, if you're not licensed in Arizona, it is inappropriate for you to provide services. Now, just because someone resides in another state doesn't mean that they can't come into Illinois to receive services from you. So if you've got someone who lives in Indiana or, or Wisconsin or uh, Iowa uh, or Kentucky and they walk across the border and have therapy in Illinois, it, let's say they're down by Shawnee National Forest in the tip, southern tip of, of Illinois mm -hmm. and they walk across from Kentucky and, and have therapy sitting in, in on a bench in Shawnee National Forest, and you're uh, uh, on the Wisconsin border just inside of Illinois, that is okay. Whereas if your patient is across the border in Wisconsin, five feet from you, that is not okay. Yeah. Now, I will let you know that it is possible in almost every state to get what's called a reciprocity license. A license where if you are in good standing in the state of Illinois and you have been working for enough years to meet the criteria of each state's reciprocity license, that you can file out an application either for a temporary license or a permanent license. And then they will often charge you $150 or so a year. And then you do have continuing education requirements as you would have if you were in that state. And often they will accept your continuing education hours from Illinois. They may want you to do some sort of ethics related uh, classes in those individual states so that you're aware of the idiosyncrasies of those individual states. There's specific confidentiality laws, which would be different than Illinois, for example, things like that. And then you can practice in those states. And from a marketing point of view, it is wonderful 
to have a practitioner, especially if you're dealing with uh, young teenagers and young adults who are going off to college. A lot of people from um, the area that I'm at, a lot of kids go to Iowa, a lot of kids go to Wisconsin, a lot of kids go to Indiana. And if you were to have uh, those three licenses in addition to, in addition to Illinois, what a great marketing thing to the mm-hmm. social workers, to the families in the area to be able to provide those services continuously in the other state via telehealth. But uh, it, I will let you know that I believe that the way the Illinois, uh, the state of Illinois interprets the governor's emergency uh, provisions from COVID was that if you have a house in Michigan that you went to go hunker down and you're licensed in Illinois, you can still provide telehealth services in the state of Illinois. So it's my belief and impression that you can practice in the state in which you are licensed, no matter where you are located. In perpetuity or just during COVID? Because that's I think, the- I think in perpetuity, because you're licensed to provide services to a patient. A patient receives services. If the patient is located within the state of Illinois, regardless of where their residence is, if they're located within the state of Illinois, you are licensed to render services within the state of Illinois. Think of it this way. You have a football. You're standing in Wisconsin. You throw that football over the border and it's caught by someone in the state of Illinois. That catching of the football is like receiving therapy. That's my interpretation of it. I believe that's how the state would interpret it. I think if you're licensed within the state of Illinois, you can practice within the state of Illinois. And it doesn't matter where you are in the country. And that, folks, is really new information. Um, so I'm I'm glad we're clarifying this, Jonathan. <laughs> A lot of folks have been asking that and have been curious about that. So make sure you check with your local governance about what the state legislation is, about where you need to be. There is this wonderful thing now for psychologists called an e-passport that you can get. And I'm assuming this will happen in other uh, with other disciplines as well for social workers and counselors and maybe marriage and family therapists. But in the interim, you can get those reciprocal licenses, folks. So, Jonathan, again, always appreciate your time and your energy and your wisdom. Today, we were talking about non-competes. We were talking about independent contractors versus employees. We talked about where you need to be and where your client needs to be and how important it is to have a professional put together your employment or independent contractor agreement. So Jonathan and I, thank you so, so much for being here with us today. Always appreciate you. Thank you folks for joining us today. Be well. We will connect with you next time. You've been listening to the Mental Health Business Mentor Podcast with Dr. Margot Jaco. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe so you don't miss an upcoming episode and head on over to the mentalhealthbusinessmentor.com website for resources and additional information. Thanks so much for listening and be well.